0: Five to the end. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son." and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Go ahead and be seated. Should have seen some of the faces out there when I said be seated the first time. Oh, man. <laughs> Uh, It's the day quill. It's it's, it's the day quill. So, well, let's look again. There are some uh, interesting uh, statements and uh, things in the text, uh, a lot of questions to ask and answer through it. So let's do it. So at that time, uh, apparently as Jesus was still engaging with this crowd, he answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Some of your translations, instead of uh, saying, th- uh, Father, I thank you, they, they say praise. And uh, the, the word in the Greek can, can go either way. Uh, they kind of come together. Um, but he's praising, he's thanking his father for concealing and revealing these things, whatever those things are. So we'll have to look at that. But to one group, the Father has saw fit to conceal these things, and to another group, it has pleased God to reveal them. But not in in an arbitrary fashion, but for very specific reasons that seem good to God. Now, from this and from the previous section, a question arises, and here it is. And it's been asked for centuries. How is it fair for God to reveal things to one group, but not to another? How is it fair? And we ask this because we think that fairness looks like God doing all that he can in order to save everyone in the world. Don't we? That's what fairness looks like to us. And I would say even more so in Western culture, because um, nothing is earned anymore. (laughs) Nothing is. (laughs) We get participation awards now but not at Calvary Chapel. There's no attendance awards, there's no stars, yeah. We think that fairness looks like God doing all that he can in order to save everyone in the world. In the previous section, you remember, Jesus said, for if the mighty works which were done in you, if they had been done in Tyre and Sudan, they would have repented long ago. Well, if that is true, why didn't Jesus do his mighty works in those cities so that they would be saved? Was anybody asking that question last week in your minds, thinking, why didn't Pastor Ben talk about it? Well, it's not a bad question. I've asked it before as well, but typically the questioner assumes that everyone in the world deserves a chance at salvation. We do, yeah. It assumes that there's something inherently good about man that merits that particular opportunity. But if that is true, and God does not do all he can to save everyone, That means there's some level of injustice with God. Who wants to pitch that accusation out there? Yeah. But it's not the case, and there's nothing actually inherently good about man that he deserves such an opportunity. Okay? Why are we so interested in the rights of the guilty and so quick to impose on the one who was offended, the one who is innocent? You know, the truth is there isn't a single person in the world who deserves a chance to be saved. That would be theologically insane to think that. If man, the offender, deserves anything good from God, the gospel would no longer be according to grace, but it would be according to man's worthiness, to his worth. Is man worthy of the gospel? (laughs) Far from it. Man is worthy of death, for the wages of sin is death, and all have sinned, and they just keep on sinning, don't they? They just keep on sinning. Everyone falls... Not just mildly short, but infinitely short of God's holy standard of righteousness. So what good thing does a holy God owe a race of rebellious, wicked sinners? (laughs) You know, what man deserves is judgment. And if he receives anything good from God, it was granted by his mercy and his grace. Our condition, apart from Christ, biblically, is worse than desperate. You know, thinking that God owes everyone an equal chance is like telling the victim of rape that she owes the same level of kindness to everyone, including the one who raped her. That sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? Yeah. But everyone has offended God to an even greater degree than the rapist did his victim. The chasm between man's sinfulness and God's holiness is so great that only God's infinite mercy can span it. If we're to really consider the depth of our depravity, versus the infinite holiness of God that is so great. It takes an infinite God to span that. The wonder is that God extended his mercy at all. That's the wonder, and that he extended it to us should deeply humble us. Who are we that he would give us any thought? As the psalmist says, what is man, that you're even mindful of him? It's amazing, and the real question is, or the answer to that is not what is man, but what is God? that he would do that, amen? You know, we should pray for those that are not saved, and if we're so concerned about the lost, we should preach to the lost, okay? Rather than coming up with some injustice in God, all of the blame must be placed squarely on man, right? Yeah. Otherwise, what we do is we start diminishing grace from the gospel, and we start saying that man deserves some good thing from God, and that's a very dangerous theology. Yeah. In our text, Jesus provides the godly response to his father for revealing these things to one group while concealing it from another. He praises his father for that. He thanked him for that. There must be a very good reason in God to do what he did. And if Jesus praised his father for doing that, we should do the same, right? We should do the same. Okay, so now we have to try and answer a couple of questions. What is it exactly that has been concealed and revealed? Who are the wise and the prudent? And who are the babes? Who are the babes? So first, what are the things that have been concealed from one group but revealed to another? Well, the immediate context in the chapter began with the discussion about the identity of Messiah. That's in verse 1 through 6. You remember the disciples of John the baptizer, uh, they were sent to Jesus to ask for John, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And Jesus pointed them to all that he was doing in fulfillment of Isaiah 35. Jesus basically said, look no further, I am the Messiah. So the identity of the Messiah would be one thing that was concealed to one group and revealed to another. Uh, Even John apparently needed it cleared up, didn't he? And if, if John, who was the forerunner of Christ, needed it to be cleared up, it needed to be cleared up for a lot of people. Okay? And then after the disciples of John departed, Jesus makes reference to those that have been resisting the advancement of the kingdom of heaven in verse 12 through 13. And Jesus said that before John came, all the prophets and the law of Moses looked forward to this present time, but people were resisting what the law and the prophets were looking forward to. So it's the current manifestation of the kingdom of heaven is the other thing that was being concealed from one and revealed to the other. And then in verse 27, which we'll, we'll look at here in a moment, it is knowing God the Father that has been concealed to one and revealed to the other. So in the immediate context of the chapter, there's, there's three things concealed and revealed. The identity of Messiah, the present manifestation of the kingdom of heaven and knowing God the Father. So that's what's concealed and revealed. Who then has this been hidden from and to whom has it been revealed? He says that it's been hidden from the wise and the prudent. Who are they? Now in the scriptures, when the wise and prudent are held in a negative light, it typically refers to those who consider themselves to be wise and prudent, okay, but are not, right? Also, it's those who are unteachable, or it's those who, consider, those who are considered by others to be wise and prudent. Now, in the context of the Gospels, uh, who are these so-called wise and prudent people, do you think? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, scribes, religious leaders, and so forth. That definitely fits them well. But then the majority of Jews at that time uh, believed that the Pharisees were the cream of the crop. Okay? And so they're actually siding with the so-called wisdom of the Pharisees. So they're bunched in there together. Uh, when we look at the, the context of the chapter, uh, the, the wise and prudent uh, are those who resisted the present manifestation of the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12, they knew better okay, in their earthly wisdom. It's those who complained about Jesus, remember, who refused to be satisfied with anything. That Jesus did, verse 19. And finally, these things were hidden from the unrepentant. That's uh, the section in verse, from verse 20, which refers to everyone who rejected Christ and his message. These, to them, it's concealed, it's covered. But it was revealed to babes. Who are they? Babes refer to those who are humble and humbly dependent on another. They naturally believe. They're, they're trusting. In fact, the very disposition of a child is prerequisite for entering the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like, a little ch- like a- as little children, I-, I got two different translations in my head. Let me read that again. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Of course, Jesus throws out a new word, converted, converted. To, To be converted means to be turned around, to be changed from one state to another. It's very similar, at least in its result, as repentance. You see, one cannot remain as they were if they are born again by the Spirit of God. Being born again is the same as regeneration. It is a miracle of God when he regenerates the soul. And if the spirit of God invades the soul, the God of all the universe, there's going to be a change. Something is going to happen. Amen. The scriptures call it conversion. Okay? Somebody is transformed. They're, they're a new creation. There's something different. Okay, That must happen. People must be converted. He says, become like a child who is humbly dependent on and desperately trusting in the one who cares for them. These are the babes. And this is why so many of the elite minds of our world they turn their nose up at the gospel, because it's just too simple. It's just too simple. They refuse to humble themselves, to admit their sinfulness and their need for Christ. Uh, They're self sufficient. They're arrogant. As Paul says, they proclaim their own wisdom, but by doing so they become fools. Become fools. And the the psalmist says that the fool says in his heart, There is no God. So April the 1st is National Atheist Day. (laughs) Babes. The gospel is for babes. So God has revealed these things to those who are humble. In fact, the scriptures say that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. These things are revealed to those who believe and those who repent. And then Jesus says this, All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Now the word know here in in all these instances here, it means to really have full accurate knowledge. It says no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and here it is, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. (laughs) Okay, so all things have been delivered to Jesus by his Father. Now all means all, And that's just too much to talk about on a Sunday morning, right? Okay. But Jesus does mention one thing in particular in the passage that he meant for us to pay attention to. It's at the very top of all things that his father has delivered to him. God the father has ordained that his son be the one by whom he is revealed to man. No one can know the father apart from Jesus granting it. No one, no one. Please let that sink in. Jesus is the gatekeeper of redemption. He's the gatekeeper. This is so interesting. In another place, Jesus makes this declaration. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If, if he is not, that is the greatest arrogance of all time, to say that he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one knows the Father, no one comes to the Father without coming through Christ. And the only way to go through Christ to the Father is to repent and trust in Christ. Yeah, no one can know God the Father unless Jesus allows it, wills it, and grants it. He holds all the knowledge of God and he alone can distribute that knowledge. First Timothy two five says that, He says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. So Christ stands between God the Father and all of humanity. And he alone, who gave his life as a ransom for sins, can give access to the Father. You guys understand what a powerful position that is for Christ His father has set him in a position that is above all positions. And then waxing agrarian, Jesus gave this illustration regarding the same truth. Here's what he said. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some of the way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door. To the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Listen, everybody who enters does so on his terms, on his terms. And those terms are repentance and faith. There's no other way. And this leads into Jesus' concluding words. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light you guys all know that text there yeah let's look closely at it the the previous section dealt with those who were rejected because of unbelief unrepentance and so forth but here jesus shifts to those who would receive he would receive if they come of course under his terms in fact when jesus says come Uh, it's a command. This is no mere invitation. And and I've said this before. The the gospel does not come as an invitation to rebellious humanity. It comes as a command. To believe is always a command in the gospel. To repent is always a command in the gospel. And when Jesus says, come, there's no please. There's no if you will, if it's convenient for you. It's, it's in the imperative form in the Greek. It's a, it's a command from Jesus, not a mere invitation. And that's another reason many will not come to Christ. I mean, you know people that just will not be told what to do, right? <laughs> they will not be told what to do. They'll not be commanded. In fact, later Jesus will give a, <clears throat> a parable, and it's about the Pharisees that, that don't want to trust in Christ And in the parable, they say, we will not have this man to rule over us. That's most of the world. We will not have this man to rule over us. But the the reality is, all are ruled by something or someone, everyone, okay? Notice that both concepts, uh, that of laboring and that of being yoked, refer to servitude in some kind, some kind in some way, don't they? Laboring or being yoked. Uh, those who perpetually labor and are heavy laden are, are overwhelmingly burdened. This person is under some kind of servitude. And slaves were said to be under the yoke. In fact, Paul uses that word to describe slaves, 1 Timothy 6.1. So both concepts speak of servitude. Okay? Everybody is a slave to someone or something, but one is in a negative light and the other in a positive light. One form of servitude produces exhaustion, and the other one produces rest. How so? Well, Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. I think he's correct. (laughs) Two important things to understand here. Jesus says, whoever commits sin, and then he says, and a slave of sin. Whoever commits sin, Jesus stated that in the present tense, in the act of voice. The grammar suggests that this is habitual in nature. It's continuous. It's, it's unbridled sinning. And no specific sin is mentioned because it doesn't matter, right? And no degree of sin is mentioned because it doesn't really matter. It's continuous. It's habitual. The same language is used by John in 1 John 3, 4-8. through 8, For those who abide in Christ as a habit of life versus those who abide in sin as a lifestyle. But Jesus also says that they are a slave of sin itself, not to the, we might say the external vice that they keep committing, but to the internal drive itself. They sin, they have an external thing that they do out there, if you will, but then they're a slave to something in here. We're talking about two very different things. He who commits sin does so because he's a slave to it. Jesus is referring to our sin nature, our sinful depravity, our, our propensity for sin. Sin isn't just something we do, it's what we are by nature. And because it's our nature, every thought and every motive is contaminated to some degree by it. Have you noticed that? Even when you set out to do something good, there's something bad in it, right? Yeah doesn't mean that every thought and motive is dominated by it, but it does mean that there's always a trace of it. A pure motive, a pure thought is not really possible for us because of the presence of sin in us, in everything about us. Okay, We are fully depraved. Theologians say totally depraved. It okay? doesn't mean that I'm as bad as I can be, trust me. <laughs> but I'm bad to the bone, all right? we're bad, yeah. But while we all have a sin nature, not all are ruled by sin. In Romans 6, Paul clearly states that believers do not have to live under the tyranny of sin. They will, of course, sin, but they do not have to be dominated by sin. Instead of being a slave to sin, they can and they should be a slave to righteousness. Paul says, but thanks be to God, this is the ESV, that you were once that you were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So everyone is a slave, aren't they? Everyone, either to sin or to Christ and his righteous standard of living. Slavery to sin burdens and it destroys the soul and families and societies and worlds, okay? Slavery to Christ redeems and refreshes the soul by which he gives us rest, real rest. Through the redemption secured for us by Jesus, he progressively delivers us from our, our, I would say our multifaceted relationship to sin. You see, when we initially come to him through faith, He delivers us from the eternal penalty of sin and then the power of sin to rule over us. The power of sin. And as we walk with him in obedience, he delivers us from the habit of sin. And finally, when we're in his presence, he will deliver us from the very presence of sin. We will be washed of our sin nature so that every motive, every word, every thought and deed will be pure. Guys, we can't even really imagine what that's like because we're so sinful, okay? But when we enter into the presence of God, we will no longer even be capable of sin. We'll be free from it completely. Yeah, it'll be very, very different. So we've answered a number of questions that we've asked the text, but there are some questions we all need to answer for ourselves. Have we humbled ourselves, or are we wise in our own sight? Is the Father hidden from us because we refuse to come to Christ? Are you a slave to sin because you have not obeyed Christ's call to come to him? I would ask, why tarry under tyranny? Humble yourself and put your trust in Jesus. His words, though not an invitation, still present an opportunity to be saved. His command still stands. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you are not experiencing rest in Jesus... It's certainly not physical rest, okay? It's a spiritual rest. If you're not experiencing that, you, you, you must come. You must go to him, amen? Let's pray. Please stand up.